Lord, thanks for the gift of this place and these people. Thank you for your love for us. As we continue walking through this letter to the church in Ephesus, but really to believers through all time, we pray that you would make these words fresh for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been going through um, the book of Ephesians recently, and we, we come to chapter 3 this morning, and um, I love when the Spirit seems to work in all of these unexpected ways, and it's Pentecost, so that is quite appropriate that that would happen this morning. Um, the fact that we received new members, I think, fits right in with the theme of this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at the church today, and... Um, the importance of this corporate gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. So that's where we're headed. I'm going to read us um, the verses. They'll be up on the screen as well, and then we'll walk through it together. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and I'm just going to comment on this here. Um, He interrupts himself at this point. There's a dash And he then goes on a 12-verse tangent, completely aside from where he is going. So if you um, have read this passage at home this week, or you get here and you're like, wait a minute, what's happening? Yeah, exactly. He he interrupts himself here, all right? So here he he begins to introduce himself and his mission um, again. So he says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, the nations, all of the people outside of the Israelites, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, pay attention to this. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings. Remember, Paul is in prison as he writes this. For my suffering is for your glory. So Paul is in the midst of writing a letter, which would have been written out loud to the recipients. And here, about halfway through the letter, he goes on this tangent and kind of goes back to the beginning again and was like, let me remind you who I am. Well, why does it matter who Paul is? Why does, it, why does he need to take all of these verses to remind them that he was a Pharisee before, that he had been devoted to persecuting the church, 
Uh, but that he had had this profound conversion experience on the road and had been knocked off of his horse, had been struck blind, had been converted, and had now begun to shift his focus to preaching the gospel, the good news. Why does it matter that Paul committed murder to this point, that he stood by and watched as Christians were martyred? He's very clear. He takes the time here to, to describe himself and it's not a complimentary description that he lays out here and it just gets worse through the course of his life his perception of himself mark pointed this out to me this week that in first corinthians he describes himself as the least of the apostles here in ephesians he has become the least of all of the lord's people right so first is the worst of the apostles now he's the worst of all the lord's people and in first timothy he describes himself as the worst among sinners he's the worst guy out there why does it matter to us that Paul is the worst among sinners? It's important because if Paul can be saved, then any of us can be saved. And Paul wants us to understand that and to see that here. Now, t Paul talks about a mystery here, and he then goes on to um, basically articulate what that mystery is. And it's rooted in the person of Jesus, the boundless riches of Christ, he says, um, being made known not only to, to Israel, not only to the Jews, but to all people, to all nations, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, as we read this passage, Paul refers to this mystery four different times. And so there could be some questions that pop up for us as we reflect on this mystery. Right? Why has God kept this profound grace a secret through all of these generations? Why has he waited until this point? And why does he then reveal it for the first time, seemingly, to Paul, of all people, as bad as he describes himself to be? Well, we could come to the conclusion that the fact that God has kept this grace a mystery suggests that God is somehow capricious, that he's a fickle God, that he's changeable, that he's subject to moods. But as we continue reading, we see that this understanding isn't based on reality. And I think that we have experienced that hopefully in our own lives. But Paul makes it clear here that God's eternal purpose, this is not a new purpose that comes into effect when Paul enters the scene that God's eternal purpose has been to extend grace to all peoples. And we see this throughout scripture, don't we? All the way back to when he first called Abraham. He said, I'm going to make her descendants as multiple as the stars in the sky and the, and the sand on the shore. Not because you're so great, Abraham, but so that through your descendants, I can bless all nations, all nations. But then time and again, throughout the course of scripture, we see Israel fail to live into that mission, that ministry, don't we? Time and again, they want that blessing to be for them. And they allow the observance of the law, which was intended to be something to set them apart, to make the nations notice them, to draw the nations to them. They make that observance of the law a cause for pride, for arrogance. We do the exact same thing today. And prophet after prophet urges Israel to remember their calling. Right? Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And perhaps the most profound articulation of it is from Jesus himself in John 10. He says, I have other sheep who are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. God has big arms. And that has been the case from the beginning of time. So God has never hidden his purpose. It has not changed It's simply been obscured by his wayward, resistant, selfish people. Each one of us. And so if God's love for all people is not the mystery, if that's not God's doing, it's our doing. The mystery then is that God has given all, has chosen to partner with us. Given all of the options at his disposal, God has chosen to partner with the church to spread this blessing, to bring about the transformation of all things. So what does it say about God that he chooses to operate in this way, that he hitches his wagon to the church? We are a pretty paltry gaggle of folks much of the time. What does it say about God that he has hit the whole outcome of this story that we are living in is tied to the church playing its part? I think the first thing that we see is that this mystery shows God's profound patience, doesn't it? That God has had a plan from the beginning of time and he has been patient to work it out with and through his people. This is a patient God. I can't even ask my kids four times to put their shoes on without losing my patience. And God is infinitely patient in inviting us, calling us, extending an invitation for us to step into the role that he has laid out for us to play in this cosmic story. Another thing that is clear is that God's ways are definitely not our ways. Right? This is not the way I would have written this story. God works by planting seeds, by working in small ways and trusting that those small ways will eventually bear great fruit. Mark and I had a chat about this passage and he was just reflecting that Jesus existed for his entire ministry in one of the most inconsequential nations in the world. Within like about a hundred mile radius. We see through this that God works not through force, but through invitation, right? I, I often do the mental gymnastics of if God is an all-powerful God, why didn't he just make everything the way that it's supposed to be and come happily ever after? But that's not the way that God works. He works through invitation. He allows us to have autonomy, to choose. He respects us as individuals. For whatever reason, God chooses to work through the church. And Paul is clear that this is not, he doesn't work through the church merely by us spewing the right words, right? That it's not merely about what we say, but more than what we say, it's how we live our lives. 
And the God working through the church also says something about his value of community. And this is profoundly different than the culture that we live in. That we live in a culture that that separates, that isolates. More and more with technology, you don't have to interact face-to-face with another human being ever. And we appreciate that, and we're grateful for that, that I can shop from the comfort of my home, and it gets delivered to the door, and I don't even have to interact with the person delivering it anymore. They just leave it on the doorstep. Life is so convenient. But we become increasingly isolated the more that we settle into that. And God is a God who values community and that has chosen to work through this messed up community called the church to do an amazing, powerful thing. As I reflect on times when I have seen the church do things way beyond its capacity, um, I got to spend some time uh, right after Hurricane Katrina down in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, doing just like a week worth of relief work. And the vast majority of the work that was being done there in that kind of right after the aftermath of the hurricane was being done by one small church coordinating volunteers from other churches that were coming from all over the country. And they had just, they were one of the only places that hadn't been flooded. And they just flung open their doors and said, this is what we are about. Like, this is what we're doing. Like, decks are cleared. Nothing else matters except for caring for our community. And the impact that that had on the lives of not just the church members. Anyone could come to the church and sign up on their whiteboard for help. And as soon as they got to that name, folks showed up at their house to do whatever needed to be done. People were overwhelmed with gratitude um, at, at what they experienced from the church in that situation. As you know, Mark and I um, were licensed as a foster family a year ago and have been kind of learning about that system and increasingly have just been made aware of just how, when they say broken, like what that actually means, that that system is broken. And I've, you know, as a pastor, my heart is like, how can we fix this? And, and it feels just so overwhelming. Um, but there is a, a network of churches in the Portland, Air, uh, Portland area who have chosen to come together, to partner together, to fix the foster care system in Oregon. And they are doing that, one child, one family at a time, in a way that the government of Oregon had been and is incapable of doing. The Lord works powerfully through his people together in community, and it defies explanation. And that gets to the next thing that I think this crazy way that God works highlights, and that is it it highlights God's power. When I think about myself, um, especially in this season, I find myself constantly coming up against my limitations. And it is virtually impossible for me to imagine God doing powerful things through a bunch of people like me stuck together. (laughs) I feel like all of our issues are going to be what's magnified when you throw us all in a room together. And yet somehow, in some amazing, divine, beyond our ability to understand way, God promises that when we commit to live life intentionally together with other believers, he's going to work through that to do far more than we can ask or imagine. That's not because we are so great. That is because God is so mighty. Well, if this is truly the plan for the church, and this has been on paper for, you know, 2,000 years, you might expect that the church would be bulging at the seams at this point, right? Right? There are very few things in life where you have a guaranteed outcome. The church has a guaranteed outcome on paper. 
We can read the end of the story in the book of Revelation. God is going to make all things new. And he's going to do it through the church. Heck, why isn't everybody jumping on board? What is it that gets in the way of our ability to live into the calling that God has laid out for us, that God is inviting us to? Well, I have just a couple suggestions. And the first one is that I think that we've forgotten that the message that has been entrusted to us is good news. Paul describes it as the boundless riches of Christ. And I think that many of us have lost touch with the goodness of the thing that brings us here together on Sunday mornings. When you walk into your place of employment, does it feel like good news to you that you are a follower of Jesus? Or does it feel like an inconvenience that you have to avoid something that is a significant part of your life and conversation and dialogue as you share about the events of your weekend? I think we've lost touch with the fact that it's good news. And I want to read a quote from N.T. Wright. I think it's, there we go. This phrase, the boundless riches of Christ, will sound strange to many, both Christian and non-Christian, who have forgotten or perhaps have never known that what can appear from the outside as a tedious or humdrum religious existence, all that going to church, people say, all that saying of prayers and trying to be holy, is in fact meant to be a delightful exploration of untold and inexhaustible riches. Being a Christian is meant to consist of going from room to room in the king's palace, relishing the beauty and splendor of it all. As I read that, I am reminded of of Israel wandering through the wilderness after having just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Hundreds of years as slaves, building bricks to build Pharaoh's empire, they find themselves freed from slavery. God parts the waters for them to cross over, crushes the Egyptian army as the water falls back into place. And days later, they are grumbling. They're grumbling. Just send us back to Egypt where at least we had meat. And we laugh at that. And yet, that is how many of us spend the majority of our days. We've lost sight of the fact that that this is good news. That the reason that we gather here on Sunday mornings is that we have been extended an infinite grace, forgiveness, unconditional love and acceptance like we have never experienced from a human being. We have hope for the future because of Jesus' work on the cross. We can look ahead to the promised restoration of all things. This mess is going to get cleaned up. Oh, I'm so glad that I can cling to that truth. I think we also fail to live into our mission because we are confused about what ultimately brings joy. We think that pursuing our own interests will bring joy. When what often happens when we do that is disconnection and loneliness. We think that committing to a community will limit us. When instead, community often facilitates intimacy that leads to deeper joy. We operate under a mentality that I can get more out of doing something else, and so I'm going to go do that thing to make the most of my time rather than 
invest in my faith, in my Christian community. And this betrays yet another reason that the church is shrinking. And that is that our understanding of God's plan is too small. I think most of us spend the majority of our time when we engage in our faith thinking about our souls, our salvation, making sure that my relationship with God is right. And that's where it ends. If we can say that me and God are good, then I can spend the rest of my time devoted to the things that I really want to be doing. But in verse 10, Paul says that God's plan was to work through the church to reveal his wisdom to who? To me? No, he says to reveal his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He doesn't even confine it to the earth. Throughout the entire cosmos, God wants to work through the church to reveal his plan of love and grace and forgiveness to the entire cosmos, the church, you and me, the church down the road, the church over in Washington, D.C., in Africa, in China. God is going to work through crazy, messed up people gathered together in messed up bunches all over the world to impact not just even all humanity, all creation, all creation, everything that is. That is the mission of the church. Well, what would happen if we began believing that that was our calling? What would happen if we began living into that? We limit ourselves when we see the mission of the church as only saving souls or increasing membership. Right? We could say, oh yes, two more. We can take it easy for a while. God's plan is for the church to be about the redemption of all things. And that includes institutions and structures. That includes body and spirit. That includes individuals and communities. Even as he is going to work through us to redeem the world, he is working in us to redeem us simultaneously. Our calling as Christ followers is to live beyond ourselves every day, every moment, to see our faith is not merely for ourselves, but as a gift to bless others. Now, one thing that can happen when we reflect on this reality is just becoming completely overwhelmed, right? I can't even impart faith uh, in meaningful, intentional ways to my kids, this community, let alone the entire cosmos, right? Um, I just want to go and like put my head on my pillow and sleep for a month when I think about how overwhelming that is. And I love where Paul comes to at the end of this passage, um, because he reminds us the source of the strength that makes this possible, right? This is why Paul highlights how, uh, how messed up he is because it draws us back to Christ. There's this constant ebb and flow of being pushed out into the world and being pulled into the heart of Christ. That we cannot possibly hope to transform the world with the love of Christ if we are not first being transformed by the love of Christ. 
We need to be drawn in to the heart of Christ. We need to be drawn into this community. We need to be committed to this community, to, to this body. We need to be living these relationships well, expressing love and compassion here before we ever take a step outside the doors. But that's not even what Christ says. He says, you're, you're messed up. Love here, go love there at the same time, and my grace will wash over it all. It's not going to be perfect. It's messy, and that's okay, because I work in messes. I'm all about messes. That's what I have to say today. God is all about messes. He loves y'all. He loves this world. And he's going to work through us as we love one another well and love him well to do a mighty work to transform this world. Amen.